The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, your Bibles, your apps, whatever it is you're using. 1 Timothy chapter 1 today, we're doing an introductory study to a brand new series we start today called Generations. We're going to look at uh, 1 Timothy together. If you want to read ahead, study ahead, pray ahead, uh, we'll be in 1 Timothy from now all the way through May. And so we'll be studying God's Word. We'll take a little break for Easter, and it'll take us all the way up to Mother's Day as we study this section of God's Word together. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus are known as the pastoral epistles. They're known as the pastoral epistles because Paul, the veteran apostle, is writing to Timothy and then Titus, his young sons in the faith, about how they should perform their duties as pastors. Timothy in Ephesus, uh, Titus in Crete, his homeland. And so for the next few months, we're going to be looking at the passing of the baton from one generation to the next. If you look on the little outline that was given to you, you'll see the branding we'll use for the months ahead. Let's do something a little different. Why don't we stand together as I read verses 1 and 2 from 1 Timothy. Let's stand. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we pray for two things. We pray for insight to understand the word, and we pray for hearts to be doers of the word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Teaching the next generation can be a daunting task. If it's our sons and daughters, grandkids, whoever it might be, or maybe mentoring them in the spiritual life, teaching the next generation can be a daunting task. And we're not always successful when we do that. I was reminded of that as I read through a story. Some of you recognize I've used it before. A schoolboy was at his desk preparing a report. He was an eight-year-old and had to be handed in uh, within the next week. And so he went to his father and he said, uh, Dad, how was I born? And the dad uh, gulped. He knew this day was coming when the son would ask that question, but he really didn't feel like gone through all the answers about the reproduction system at that time. So he turned to his son and said, son, the spark brought you. Son went back and said, but dad, I, I I need to understand a little more. He said, I tell you what, your granddad is in the TV room. Why don't you go ask him? And so he went in the TV room, and he looked at Granddad, and he said, uh, Granddad, how was my father born? <clears throat> and uh, he gulped, and not wanting to have to share anything with his young grandson, he said, well, a Stark brought your father. And he said, uh, Granddad, how were you born? And he said, well, honestly, the Stark brought me too. The boy went back to his computer and began to type. He said, there hasn't been a normal birth in our family for three generations. Understanding and passing on to the generation. Sometimes it's a daunting task and sometimes we don't do too well, do we? And what we're going to see in 1 Timothy is that uh, Paul is passing on to Timothy. Paul is a seasoned apostle. He's the fatherly one with sage advice. He's going to pass on to Timothy, his true son in the faith. If you look at verse 2, it says, Timothy, you're my true son in the faith. On the first missionary journey Paul went on, it seems that Timothy came to faith and then he would travel with Paul after that. But what we see here is that Paul is passing on to Timothy what he desires to do, that is to impact generations. 
In fact, in the book of 2 Timothy, which is the last book that Paul wrote, he wrote it several years after 1 Timothy, we read in 2 Timothy 2, 2 these words. The things which you, Timothy, have heard from me, that's Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will teach others also. What Paul is saying, Timothy, is I want to impact generations through you. He says, Timothy, the things you, you as Timothy, you've heard from me, that's Paul. He says, entrust these to faithful men, that's a third generation. Paul, Timothy, faithful men of another generation who will teach others also, that's a fourth generation. Paul's saying, my desire is to have generational impact, Timothy, through you. My desire is to impact generations. And Timothy, I'm entrusting you that which has been given to me for you to give to faithful men. And I'm praying those faithful men will pass on to others also. And Paul's saying, Timothy, I've got a desire. And that's to be uh, one who impacts generations to come. A few years ago, Bev and I started praying a little differently. One of the things we started praying is that as our kids are out of the nest now, we've got five grandkids that have come along. We're praying that we will impact generations. We're praying will impact generations within our family, and honestly, we're praying will impact generations through you, the church of Jesus Christ. We're praying that generations might be impacted. God, by his grace, might use us in some realm, some way, somehow, to impact generations to his glory, for, for his praise. That's our prayer. That's been our prayer. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, my desire, Timothy, is through you to do that. And by the way, Timothy, I'm going to give you some instructions. That's what First and Second Timothy, especially First Timothy, is about. I'm going to give you some instructions, some guidelines on how to do church, if you will. And what we find in First Timothy are guidelines for the church. You're going to see that Paul is telling Timothy, I desire to mentor you, but Timothy, I also desire to impact others for, for a, a long time. And what we see, because we gather together here as a body on a Sunday morning, worshiping the risen Savior, and we do it in a certain way. We have elders, we have deacons, we have roles of men, roles of women. All those things are sourced and resourced in First Timothy. And so for the next several months, we're going to look at how we have been impacted by Paul and by his writings through the Word of God, and also how we might personally impact generations within our family and within the spiritual life. So fasten your seatbelts for the weeks ahead. That's what we're going to talk about. So this morning what I want to do, if you go to a game or you go to a performance, you get a program so you know who the players are. By the way, did you notice I said performance as well? Some of you accuse me of being unidimensional. All you talk about is sports. Uh, performances. I, I go to performances too. I've been to Phantom of the Opera three times. Some dude came to me at the first time and said, I didn't know you were into ghosts. You're talking about these phantoms. He had no idea what I was talking about. I've been to Les Mis a couple of times. I've been to Avita. I've been to Hairspray, even though I know it wouldn't benefit me in either way. <laughs> That's what a wise husband does so he can watch sports, actually. <laughs> but, but what you see, here, here are the players. The players are, are two men, Paul and Timothy. Verse 1 is Paul. Verse 2 is Timothy. Who are they? What do we know about them? And how can they impact our lives? For some of you, this is going to be all review. You know who Paul is, you've studied his life in depth, but hopefully it's a good review. Basically, what we see is that Paul is a spiritual father of Timothy. He's a spiritual father of Timothy. When we meet him, his name is not Paul, his name is what? Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. He's a persecutor of the church. Turn back in your Bibles or your apps to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, the book of Acts, has to do with the birth of the church and the things that subsequently come out of it. Acts chapter 7 deals with the first martyr of the church. And the first martyr is whom? Who's the first martyr? 
Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr of the church. And so Acts chapter 7 deals with the killing of Stephen because of his faith in Jesus Christ. The Jewish audience has come against him. He has recited to them basically the Old Testament and uh, an overview of the Old Testament. And then in Acts chapter 7 verse 58, we meet Saul of Tarsus for the first time. In Acts 7 58, it says, and when they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. The first introduction we have of Saul of Tarsus is he is an eyewitness to the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament church. Saul is there. If you drop down to chapter 8, verse 1, I've got this on the screen in front of you. If you look in your Bibles on your apps, 8.1 says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. When it came time for Stephen, to, when they decided if they're going to stone him or not stone him, Saul is like this, I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm all for putting this guy to death. And Saul, after that, became like a shark that seen blood in the water. I mean, he becomes a persecutor of the church. There's blood in the water. Stephen's blood has been shed. And Saul becomes one who goes against Christians. He's on an open hunt against Christians. It's open season for Christians. For Saul, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Saul became a persecutor of Christians. Got worse than that. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is in front of Agrippa, the king. And Paul lays out to him his testimony. And these are Paul's words. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul says, I want you to know that when I was a Jew seeking after things of Judaism and growing in that faith and wanting to become a leader among the Pharisees, I became a persecutor of Christians. And I began to look for them. He said, I I thought I had to do this. Look at the top of that. Look at Acts 26, 9. He says, I thought to myself, I've got to find things hostile to do towards those who name Christ. And the scripture goes on there in his own words. He says, whenever it came time to cast a vote, I said, let's kill him. And he said, I went to the synagogues and I tried to force them to blaspheme. And we read from history how Christians were forced to blaspheme. There were a number of ways they were done. They would be dipped in hot water, hot oil until they would deny their faith. Some would be sewn into the skins of wild animals, wild animals would be killed, and then they would uh, gut them, and then they would put Christians into the skins of these wild animals and throw them out where there were wild dogs and on rare occasion to the lions. Later on, they would put them on, uh, they would dip them in tar, they would crucify them, and they would light them on fire as street lights on the Appian Way. And Paul says, that was me, that was me. I wanted Christians to be persecuted. I voted for them to die. I tried to force them to blaspheme. One of the things we forget is that Saul of Tarsus impacted generations negatively. Saul of Tarsus. Whenever somebody mentioned his name, sometimes it was repugnant to them. Saul of Tarsus, he's the guy that killed my mama. Saul of Tarsus, he's the guy that voted for my mama to die. Saul of Tarsus, he's the one that went to my neighbor who loved Jesus and forced him to blaspheme the name of Jesus. Saul of Tarsus. 
So later on, after Saul became Paul, and he came to that first home group, and he said, let's bow our head and close our eyes and pray. (laughs) Would you have closed your eyes with him sitting there? He says, I looked for Christians. I pursued Christians. I even went to foreign countries looking for them. And he said, I was so adamant, adamantly against them that I did whatever I could to force them to deny Jesus. A couple of quick applications and we'll move on. Some of you are like Saul of Tarsus today. You're saying, Gary, that's a bit melodramatic. I mean, come on. No, nobody's killing Christians today in America. No, but you know, some of you, you've got a, you've got a wife who wants to go to a small group or to a Bible study and you mock her because of it. Or you've got a husband who wants to live his life according to the word of God and, and you mock him. Or you've got a single friend and, and they, they, they're doing everything they can to stay pure and you laugh at them. That's persecution. <clears throat> and some of you are like Saul of Tarsus. You mock, you ridicule, you make fun of other believers. And I would say you need to repent of that and you need to stop it before your actions bring you to judgment. Second application. If you're being persecuted, you're blessed. You say, Gary, what have you been smoking? You're blessed if you're persecuted? Those are Jesus' words, by the way. In Matthew chapter 5, he's speaking a section known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Note it says, for the sake of righteousness they're persecuted, not because they're obnoxious, not because they are judgmental, not because they're taking a stand on stuff they shouldn't be taking stands on, but they're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He said, there's a kingdom. Blessed are you when men hurl insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. When you meet persecution at the hands of others for the sake of the gospel, you are blessed. You ever meet anybody that's been persecuted? I've shared with you the story of Ivan Prokopchik, my dear friend, our dear friend in the Ukraine, who spent five years of his life in a Russian gulag because of his faith in Jesus. When we were in China, Bev and I went to China about two years ago. What we went, well, the first area we went to is the area where the earthquake in China took place about seven or eight years ago where thousands of people lost their lives in that area. The government is very restrictive. We went into a restaurant. We could not bow our heads to pray because the folks we were with risked persecution after we left if we did that. And so in, in that setting, those dear brothers and sisters live They live under the lamp, under the light, under the spotlight of knowing that any day, any time, they could be hauled off every day of their lives. Went to school where some Christian sisters taught. They have secret Bible studies with the kids from their school. It's an amazing thing. They have 15, 20 kids in a Bible study. They have to go meet off campus. They have to do it in hiding. But but they're willing to risk that for the good of the gospel. The confusing thing about China, to be honest, is we flew to another city. And in that city... After being in the first place, our first exposure, first time ever in China was here where it was very restrictive. We go to this next city and our host says, uh, by the way, tonight uh, I need you to bring your Bibles with you because uh, we're going to a Bible study. And I'm thinking, I don't know that I really want to go to a Bible study tonight here. (laughs) 
And we carry our Bibles. We go to this apartment. It was hot. They opened the windows. There are two dudes with guitars. We start singing praise songs like we just sang. And then they have a Bible study with the windows wide open for literally, there's a park beneath, literally thousands and thousands of people could hear. It's the schizophrenia of China right now. But here's the reality. We have brothers and sisters around the world right now who risk their very lives for the sake of the gospel. Right now. In fact, I read this article recently in Evangelical Missions Quarterly. There's an Asian nation that's not mentioned here. It's a, it's a nation where you cannot proselytize, you cannot share your faith with others. In fact, it's illegal for you to convert to another religion and to Christianity especially. And it says, at baptism, these are the questions we now ask our people. So you're getting ready to get baptized. These are the questions. Are you willing to forsake your home and lose the blessing of your parents to follow Christ? Or are you willing to sacrifice your job for the cause of the gospel? Or are you willing to go to the village and those who pers- go back to your home village and those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Or are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Or are you willing to be beaten rather than to deny your faith? Or are you willing to go to prison for the sake of the gospel? Or are you willing to risk dying for Jesus before you're baptized? I would say we have a few fewer takers at baptism if we ask those questions. And you say, yeah, I'm willing to give up my job, and if I've got to forsake my family, and if I've got to go back and seek forgiveness from those who persecuted me, I'll be baptized. You know the date on this? 2011. Just happened. A year ago, asking these questions about the gospel. We're blessed. We don't worry about that. Many people I know are concerned about our culture, where we're headed, just like I am. But you're going to walk out of this room. Nobody's going to arrest you for having worshipped at Temple Bible Church this morning. And you can go to your house and you can go to a small group and you can participate and not worry about being arrested or being persecuted or, or being, a, being, being thrown into jail because of your faith. My prayers will continue that way for us. My prayer is that these dear folks will be protected by the Savior. And so we look at that, and some of us are like Paul, and some of us need to recognize it's a blessing when you're persecuted. Second thing about Paul, he was a persecutor of the church. He was also a pursuer of Christ. He was not only a persecutor of the church, but he became a pursuer of Christ. You're familiar with the story. It happens in Acts chapter 8. Paul is on the road to Damascus, and on that road, Jesus meets him. And when Jesus meets him, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you, why are you persecuting me? And he has a, an encounter with Christ, and he becomes a new creature in Christ. All things begin to pass away, and new things come. He becomes one who strengthens the church. In fact, you hold in your hand the, the, the majority of the New Testament is written by Paul. He's the most prolific author of the New Testament scriptures. After that is Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts in which you hold in your hand is a man who persecuted believers, but who now is a pursuer of Christ. And it's amazing. When, you, when we talk about Crispus last week being the least likely guy in Corinth to be saved, I'm going to tell you Paul was the least likely man in the world to be saved. So if you've got somebody in your sphere of influence, somebody in your world who doesn't know Jesus and you've given up on him, all you have to do is look at Paul. If he can come to Jesus, anybody can come to Jesus. This is like Osama bin Laden coming to faith before he was killed. I mean, that's what it's like. I mean, Paul was ravaging Christians, killing Christians, making sure that he voted for them to die, and all of a sudden now he's coming to Bible studies. Honey, I got good news for you. We're hosting the small group tonight, and we've got a special guest, Paul. Right. Right. He became a pursuer of Christ. 
On the second missionary journey, Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman, a believer. His father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren. Timothy had a good reputation. And not only that, it says Paul wanted him to go with him. Paul saw this man. He wanted him to go on the second missionary journey with him. And so Timothy, being a Greek, was uncircumcised. And if they were going to go and minister to Jewish people, Paul knew he had to be circumcised. So Timothy willingly underwent that procedure so that he could go with Paul. Timothy was a godly man, a faithful man from a godly heritage on his mom's side. By the way, ladies, if you are the believer in your family and your husband is not, she's a, Lois and Eunice are good examples of the impact that a woman can make within a family. Don't give up. You may be the only person in your family that knows Christ. Don't give up. Through Mother Lois and Grandmother Eunice, what we find is that Timothy impacts generations through Paul who mentored him. This is the Apostle Paul. Actually, they didn't have photographs in those days. This is an ordering, rendering of the Apostle Paul. A third century bishop, a second century bishop wrote these words about Paul. He said uh, he was a man small of stature with a bald head. I don't know what's so bad about that. Crooked legs in a, in a fair state of body with eyebrows that met in the middle and a nose that was hooked. Sounds like a good Italian to me, actually. He wasn't anything to look at. I mean, read about Paul. He wasn't, you know, a Brad Pitt kind of guy, if you know what I mean. You know what I wrote on this card when I read that? Whatever his physical stature may have been, his spiritual stature was unparalleled. Amen? Whatever his physical stature may have been. See, the issue is not how we look on the outside. The issue is what's in our heart. And Paul was a man who pursued Christ in deep ways. And so Paul, Saul of Tarsus became Paul. But what about Timothy? If you look at verse 2, he says, Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace to you, Timothy. Timothy, what was he like? Timothy was young, but he was faithful. He was young, but he was faithful. Pastor Gary, how do you get that? Well, turn ahead in 1 Timothy to chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. He was young, but he was faithful. In 1 Timothy 4.12, we, we estimate, scholars say, that Timothy was probably in his late 20s, early 30s when Paul was writing this letter. He stayed behind in Ephesus to pastor that church. And in 1 Timothy 4.12, it says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Timothy, don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness, but in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself to be an example to those who believe. Timothy, you may be young, but you can be an example to others. Timothy, you may be young, but you can have character, and, and you, you can let others see that character living in you. Timothy, you may be young. You may be a young man in your 20s, but you can be an example to the body. You, you can grow. We are, if you look around this room, TBC is filled with young people, and we are blessed by it. Young singles, young couples. Uh, we have honored, in recent months, we've honored military folks a couple of times. We've honored folks that are 60 and above. We honored teenagers one Sunday. And uh, one of the amazing things is to have a church filled with so many folks in their 20s and 30s. This is your verse. This is your verse. Paul is writing to you. He's saying if you're a young person, this is your verse. If you're in your 20s or 30s, we want to honor you. Would you stand? If you're in your 20s or 30s this morning, would you stand up? And I'm not checking birth certificates, so there we go. Look at that. Wow. Look at all these guys. 
I'm feeling older by the minute up here. Gosh, look at that. That's amazing. Maybe what? Half of this group stood up close to it. Most churches, as the pastor ages, and I hate to say it, but I'm aging, as the pastor ages, the church ages. An amazing thing at TBC, even though I'm aging as the, as the senior pastor, what we find is we keep attracting young couples more and more. And here's what I pray. I pray that you'll reach your generation with the gospel. I pray that you will reach your generation. In fact, here's what I want you to do. If you stood up, look at verse 12. I want you to insert your name there. I want you to insert your name there. Instead of Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness. You insert your name there. George, Harry, Susie, Melissa, whatever it is. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. But in your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, and your purity, be an example to the body of Christ. You know, it's amazing when I look back, time flies. I was, uh, Bev and I were 26 when we came here 31 years ago. 26. And uh, by God's grace, he brought us to a group of about 40 or 50 folks. Wanted to reach Central Texas, wanted to make an impact. And uh, we have, uh, things have changed. Bev looks at me and says, a lot's changed. When we got here 31 years ago, you had a lot of hair and a little stomach, and in those years they flipped. But that's not all that's changed. What's changed tremendously is the impact that you're making. It's just amazing to see the tentacles of the body of Christ reaching out globally and locally. And here's my prayer, that as a next generation, you'll take that baton and you'll run well. You'll run well. If you look at the list of names that was in the bulletin last week of men who are becoming deacons at TBC, we're intentionally tapping the next generation on the shoulder. We've got uh, two Hispanic brothers, an African-American brother, and three young brothers in their 20s or 30s coming on the deacon board because of the diversity in our body, and we felt the need to do that, to, to be more diverse, and uh, also for us to recognize that there's a generation coming up, and those of us that are older need to step aside at the appropriate time so that that generation can be built up and honor the Savior and serve well. And you were part of the group that stood up. You've got a great opportunity to minister, a great opportunity to, to be counted for the Savior. So how you do it? How you do in your speech? What's your conduct like, my brothers and sisters in your 20s and 30s? What's your purity like? It's interesting he would tell Timothy to be pure. What, what, what's your faith like? What's your faith like? You can be transformed. You can be transformed. Here's, here's what he says about Timothy. You're young, but you're faithful. He says, Timothy, I, I, I hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to Philippians. I hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. I have no one else of kindred spirit. Paul and Timothy are kindred spirits who genuinely concern for your welfare. They seek after their own interests but, and not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of Timothy's proven worth. You know that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel. Timothy is a faithful man. He may be young, but he's faithful. I can send Timothy to Philippi. I can send him to you and your church. And I know that Timothy has you on his heart. I know he's concerned about other people. In your 20s and 30s, oftentimes you're finishing education, you're climbing in your career. And it's hard to be concerned about others. He says, I commend Timothy to you because Timothy is a young man whose heart beats for other people. So if you just stood up, does your heart beat for others? 
It's your greatest concern finishing college, finishing medical school, finishing residency, finishing fellowship, finishing whatever it might be, or, and, and there's nothing wrong. Those are all good things, all good things. Getting that career on track, getting that career started, starting that new business, or are you so consumed with that that you don't invest in the lives of others? Timothy was young, but he was faithful. How to live this transformed life? When you believe what Jesus believed, you have a transformed mind. When you live as Jesus lived, you'll have transformed character. When you love as Jesus loved, you'll have transformed relationships. When you minister as Jesus ministered, you'll have transformed service. And when you lead as Jesus led, you'll have transformed influence. That's why Paul tells Timothy, he says, Timothy, in your conduct, in your speech, in your faith, in your love, in your purity, don't let anybody look down on you. When you look like Jesus, it's amazing the impact you can have. Timothy was also timid, but he was trustworthy. He was timid, but he was trustworthy. Pastor Gary, how do you know he was timid? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, we read these words. I am mindful of the sincere faith, Timothy, that was in you. It first dwelt in your grandmother and in your mom, and I'm sure it's in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God that is in, in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but one of power and love and discipline. If you study the books of First and Second Timothy, and I had the privilege actually of writing my master's thesis on First and Second Timothy and Paul's relationship to Timothy in it. And one of the things that, that I saw and that you can see if you read through First and Second Timothy <clears throat> is that along, whoa, I'm like choking on your own spit up here. <coughs> it happened last hour too. <coughs> That's a good lesson on not to speak everything that comes to your mind when you're preaching. <coughs> wow. <coughs> okay. Don't be timid, Gary. Go for it. <laughs> there are two things you see about Timothy. First of all, he says you've got to kindle afresh the gift God's given you. When you study First and Second Timothy, it seems, especially in Second Timothy, that Timothy's zeal and his passion has waned. There's something that's happened. We don't know what it is. We know in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy had to confront false teachers. Maybe it's the journey has become long. Maybe it's become difficult. Maybe he's had to confront folks and he's struggling with it. Maybe it's because he's been ripped up. Who knows? Who knows? But Timothy, kindle afresh the faith that's there. Some of you, that's the greatest word you can hear this morning. Some of you are spiritually dry. You're like the desert. There was a time when you were passionate about Christ, when you were madly in love with Christ, when you followed Christ, when you discipled others, mentored others. But now you need to kindle afresh the gift that's been given to you. You are dry. The passion is gone. Kind of like your marriage. I mean, there are a lot of marriages in here, a church this size. Passionless marriages. You once were soulmates, now you're roommates. You once had your hearts knit together, now you can't even sleep in the same bedroom. And, and if you don't tend to your marriage, your passion goes. Your love and the enjoyment in it goes. And your zeal goes. You feel like you're just a paycheck. You feel like you're just a maid. And before long, you look up and realize, what in the world's happened between us? Same thing happens in the spiritual life. And he says, you've got to rekindle, Timothy. You've got to rekindle. 
I'm going to tell you, marriages can be rekindled by the way. Some of you are here and you're thinking, man, I want out. I, I wish I could somehow send my husband away, my wife away. I, I wish somehow something would happen and that they could be changed and, or something would happen. Here's the reality of it. I, I have had the privilege of doing seven remarriages in 31 years. These are couples who've been divorced and then got back together. God can resurrect dead things. He can resurrect your cold, passionless marriage. He can resurrect your cold, passionless spiritual life as well. But you've got to invest in the word. You've got to invest in a community of believers. You have to surrender your life every day. And you have to live for others and not yourself. It can be rekindled. It can be rekindled. Just as a dead marriage can be rekindled, a dead spiritual life can be rekindled. Just as a dead spiritual life can be rekindled, a dead marriage can be rekindled. He says, Timothy, don't be timid. He was timid, but he was trustworthy. He was trustworthy. He says, I want you to know, Timothy, he's a faithful child. He's trustworthy. He tells the Corinthians, I sent Timothy to you because he is my beloved and faithful child. Finally, Timothy. Timothy was one who confronted others, but he encouraged others. He confronted others, but he encouraged others. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 one more time, it says in verse 3, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia. Timothy, when I left you, I, I begged you to return or remain at Ephesus in order to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Timothy, you've got to confront these false teachers. I want you to stay there. In fact, if you go down to verse 18, he says, Timothy, I entrust you these things and the prophecies made to you to fight the good fight. Keep faith. Don't get shipwrecked. He said, Timothy, I'm depending upon you to confront these false teachers. The bad things are happening in Ephesus. We've got to keep things going right, Timothy. That's your job. But Timothy, you also need to be an encourager. And he was an encourager to the church at Thessalonica. He says, Timothy is the one who strengthens and encourages you in your faith. Some of you are confronters but not encouragers. That's why you are lonely and bitter. If you think you have the spiritual gift of confrontation, you don't. Okay? But some of you exercise that gift on a regular basis. And that's why you're bitter and that's why you're lonely. Versus encourager Timothy is passing out verbal bouquets to those that are around him. Who's your Paul? Who's your Timothy? Who's your Paul? Who's that older, wiser, sage man or woman that you pick up the phone and say, hey man, can we have a cup of coffee? I'm wrestling with some things in my business or I, I, I see the way you treat your wife and I've got to learn how to do that. Or an older lady, a, a lady in the faith who is mature and you say, I see the way you worship or the way you parent your kids and the way you speak about your grandkids, or I, I hear you talk about spending time in the Word. Would, would you give me a little bit of your time? You younger folks that stood up in your 20s and 30s, let me challenge you to do this. You see someone in this body or, or anybody, a, anywhere, a, a fellow believer who has a strong faith, and you say, that's a family I want to be like. That's a couple I want to be like. That's somebody who I, I, I want to get to know better. Why don't you do this? Why, why don't you... Why don't you text that older man, that older woman, or, or email them? Or they don't text or email, call them. They still have phones, believe it or not. <laughs> and say, you know, I don't know you that well, but, but would you mind meeting with me? I had a young lady stick around last hour. And she said, Gary, I've got to tell you what happened to me. 
She said, I'm shy by nature, and I went to a women's event a year ago. And uh, I've never had an older lady mentor me. And I came from Oregon, and I came down here, and I really don't know anybody, and I met a lady at the women's event, and, and I wasn't bold enough to even ask her, but she invited me to meet with her. I've grown more in the spiritual life in a year than I have all the years put together. One faithful lady just coming alongside another young lady and saying, I'll be glad to meet with you. Older ladies, older men, who's your Timothy? I mean, are are you on the lookout for a couple of young guys? You're, You're trained, you're equipped. Are you looking for some young guys, some young couples to open your home up and have in? And just say, hey, you know, every other week, why don't you come? We'll have dinner or we'll have dessert or we'll have coffee. or, And let's just talk about life and Jesus together. Well, why would you not do that? Why not? There are young people in this body just dying, just dying to hear from you. And you think, I don't have anything to offer. If they call me, I'm going to die. You've lived life. Even if you've struggled along the way, Howard Hendricks wrote a book on mentoring and discipleship. And in that he said, everybody needs a Paul, a Timothy, and a Barnabas. We're not talking about Barnabas. Barnabas is a son of encouragement. We all need a son of encouragement. He says, we all need a Paul. That is, we need a a spiritually mature person who's willing to build into our lives. Not someone who's necessarily smarter than we are or more gifted than we are. Certainly not someone who has all of life together because that person doesn't exist. But you need somebody who's been down the road, somebody who's willing to share with you not only their strengths, but their weaknesses, not only their successes, but their failures. In other words, somebody who's willing to, to, to go through life with you. Then you need a Timothy. You need a Timothy so you don't become a reservoir of all that's happening to you, but a conduit of God's truth to others. You need a younger man or woman in your life so you can build into them and so that you can impact generations. Generations. That's our study for the next few months. Generations. Impacting others to the glory of God as we use the gifts and talents and the experiences that he's given us. Father, I pray. I pray for a body of believers that look out for one another. I pray for older men and women who are willing to invest and pour their lives into younger men and women and younger men and women who are willing to do the same. I pray that your word will go out with force and with might. And we'll see communities of believers built up to your glory. If you're here today and you are Saul of Tarsus, you don't know Jesus. You're Saul before he became Paul. You may not openly persecute others, or maybe you do. Maybe you ridicule and mock others because of their faith. I'm going to give you an invitation right now to have a heart change, a heart transformation. To be forgiven of your sin, not just that sin, but all sin, so you can have eternity in the presence of the living God. You can pray with me right now, Lord Jesus, I desire the same change that took place in that man. I desire for you to be my Savior, for my life to be different because of it. If you're here today and you're parched, and you just need somebody to pour into you, you email me, David Richardson, Beth Mackey, Stephen Chung, Danny Cunningham, your college student, you email Shannon Sword, high school, Dave Tate, junior high, Tim Cartwright. 
We'll help you. We'll, we'll help you find somebody. We'll help you women find another woman, and men find another man. Put you in a small group with some others, some other couples to grow with, so that we might impact generations to the glory of God for his sake, for his honor, to make him famous. You're the one we love. You're the one we honor. We go our way in your name. Amen.